It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Turns out William Shatner might never have made it into space. He was not Jeff Bezos' first choice for the celebrity seat on the Blue Origin rocket. It was Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks, of course, famously in Apollo 13, as well as a million other great movies, um, was on Jimmy Kimmel the other night, and he said, yeah, Bezos asked me to do it. Well, yeah, provided that I pay, and it costs like 28 million bucks or something like that. I'm doing good, Jimmy. I'm doing good, but I ain't paying 28 million bucks. You know what? We could simulate the experience of going to space right now. It's about a 12-minute flight. That about it. He was kind of moving around in the chair. So, look, Bezos is his businessman. If he couldn't, could have gotten Hanks to cough up 28 million big ones, then we would have had a very different storyline. I still think it's better that Captain Kirk went, maybe not for Bezos' bottom line, but you know what? He can afford it. Um, the United States Postal Service is putting out a new stamp honoring Catherine Graham. And I just think this is great. I mean, Catherine Graham is not some mythic figure to me. I knew Kane Graham reasonably well. And um, amazing life story. Wrote uh, her autobiography that turned out to win a Pulitzer Prize. And she will be, uh, her, her visage will be on this stamp. I mean, there aren't many women who've accomplished what Catherine Graham has done. And it's not just, you know, that she owned and ran as publisher of the Washington Post in the Ben Bradley era, uh, as <laughs> famously captured in the movie The Post by Meryl Streep. And of course, this was an unintentional segue. I'm just slapping my forehead here. Who, paid, who played Ben Bradley? It was Hanks, Tom Hanks. All right, so the thing is uh, that this is a woman whose you know, family owned the paper, she married Phil Graham. Phil Graham was the publisher. And then Phil Graham, uh, in the early 1960s, committed suicide. And suddenly, you know, everybody thought Kay Graham would just hire some man to take it over. And she, uh, despite, you know, you could argue, had a tremendous education and uh, understood how to move in high society and all that. But what did she know about the newspaper business? What did she know about running a major corporation? And yet she not only took it over and brought the Post from being basically a regional paper to a paper that could be talked about in the same sentence as the New York Times, but she had a spine of steel when it came to, as famously captured uh, in the movie, um, you know, standing up to the Nixon administration over the Pentagon Papers and later Watergate. Um, I can remember Kay Graham summoning me to her office uh, many years ago before she died and asking me uh, about this thing, the Internet, and how much the Post, which had like a fledgling website at that point, like most news organizations, uh, how much the Post should be involved in that. Was this really going to be the future? You know, she was smart enough to know what, know what she didn't know, which is that there was this new frontier that she didn't understand. And at the same time, she had a very traditionalist, you know, print person's view of it, which is, is there, is there any money to be made there? And isn't it um, kind of a Wild West atmosphere? And I tried to, you know, gently explain to her that this was the future, that she really didn't have any choice, that we need, all needed to wake up to this. Not that this was any brilliant insight on my part. Anyway, the K. Graham stamp is now reality. All right. Um, let's go to story... Number one, a lot of this is going to have to do with the bombshell results from the Virginia governor's race. And by the way, in New Jersey, 
the incumbent Democratic governor, Phil Murphy, just barely pulling out that race at the last minute as more ballots were counted. But, you know, he was expected to win by six, seven points easily. So let me begin with Joe Biden's reaction on two different things. So Biden held a news conference yesterday to talk up the fact that, you know, kids 5 to 11 can now get COVID vaccines. And, of course, he knew uh, that the questions would be all about Election Day. And, you know, I'm reminded of what George W. Bush said uh, when he got cream, when his party got creamed in the midterms about a thumping. I'm reminded of what Barack Obama said when his party got creamed in the midterms, and that was a shellacking. Biden took a much more low-key approach. And in fact, the thing that's most noteworthy that I'll start with is when uh, Peter Ducey of Fox News asked the president whether or not the Biden administration is in fact considering giving illegal immigrant families who were separated from their children at the border about $450,000 per person. Um, there were reports that were surfacing. Your administration is planning to pay that amount. Do you think that might incentivize more people to come over illegally? And Biden, you know, threw it right back at Ducey and said, if you guys keep sending that garbage out, yeah, but it's not true. And Ducey said, so you're saying this is a garbage report? And Biden said, yeah. And asked again about $450,000. Biden said, that's not going to happen. So, It turns out this is not something that was created or conjured up by Fox News. In fact, this all started with a Wall Street Journal article reporting on the negotiations between the Biden administration and the ACLU, which has a lawsuit over these families. And remember, this all happened during the Trump administration, and it's got to be resolved legally. And according to sources familiar with the negotiations, reports the Wall Street Journal later confirmed by the New York Times, $450,000 for each uh, family member, or each family affected by the Trump zero-tolerance policy, was actively being discussed. The Times repeats that today, um, according to people familiar with the matter. So Biden's reaction was, oh, this is some crazy Fox News thing, but, but Ducey was simply asking about report in two different high-quality newspapers about negotiations that are going on. In fact, the ACLU put out a statement, kind of a pissed-off statement, saying, well, President Biden may not have been fully briefed about the actions of his own Justice Department. And by the way, if uh, he does, doesn't go ahead with this, he's abandoning a core promise. So it wasn't a garbage report. It may not be a true, but here's the main point I want to make. This report about the 450K has been out there for a week, maybe 10 days. I'm not sure of the exact time frame. And during that time, I mean, I didn't know I missed the original story. I didn't know whether it was true or not. Is this just something somebody's speculating about? Is it true? The Biden administration said nothing about it. Nothing. Just let it hang out there, which would lead you to believe it wasn't true. The president would have his people or Jen Psaki or somebody knock it down. And so this has a lot to do, this sort of low-key approach and reactive approach to the media has a lot to do, in my view, with why President Biden right now is in trouble. He let this fester until finally he's asked about it at a media availability, and then he knocks it down and then he blames the press. They could have 
killed this. I mean, look, there's going to be some kind of legal settlement, I'm sure. I don't think it's going to be anywhere near $450,000 because that's political suicide. But they could have killed this the next day, and then you wouldn't have the president in the position of being asked that question. Also in this same uh, media availability, of course, the president asked about the elections. And here, I want to just recount for you uh, questions that were asked to President Biden by Yamiche Alcindor. She is the White House correspondent for PBS NewsHour, and she's also the host of PBS's Washington Week. And, you know, she got into it many times with Donald Trump, asked Donald Trump very aggressive questions. And Trump, in fairness, you know, would beat up on her sometimes unfairly. Uh, I, I don't know her personally. I'm sure she's a very nice person. But I don't think she makes much of a secret about her liberal political views. So look at the way she frames the question about Glenn Youngkin's victory in the Virginia governor's race over Terry McAuliffe and how she sort of buys into the fact that the Republicans, in this case the Youngkin campaign, must have been doing something dishonest or dastardly. Question from Yamiche. What should Democrats possibly do differently to avoid similar losses in November, meaning next year, especially as Republicans are now running on culture war issues and false claims about critical race theory? Now, that's not completely made up because there was an argument in Virginia, you know, that Youngkin was saying we shouldn't have critical race theory in schools. And in fact, critical race theory, as narrowly defined, is not taught in Virginia schools. But she immediately says, okay, Republicans are lying. What are you going to do about it? And Biden's response was, I think we should produce for the American people. She comes back again, and Alcindor says this. But what's your message, though, to Democratic voters, especially black voters, who see Republicans running on race and education, lying about critical race theory, and they're worried that Democrats do not have an effective way to push back on that? Well, for the president, I think the whole answer is just to speak the truth, lay out where we are. So twice in the course of two questions, uh, she adopted the view, uh, you know, she obviously sees herself as a champion for black voters, and she adopted the view that the Republicans are lying. And the whole critical race theory debate is so much broader, and in fact, I want to get to it, so let's move on to number two. Um, here's an interesting column in the New York Times by conservative Ross Douthat. Now, he is a never-Trump conservative, to be sure. I've quoted him many times. And with this and the next story I'm going to do, uh, I want to talk about the framing of education. Because suddenly, yesterday morning, when Yunkin won, McAuliffe lost, and New Jersey's Murphy was in trouble. Uh, and there were a lot of, you know, the Republicans are going to take over the lower house in the Virginia legislature. A lot of races around the country. A lot of pundits sort of slapped their foreheads and said, oh my God, schools really are an issue. And it's not just about Tony Morrison's book. And parents really are pissed off. And we've got to now get back to our keyboards and write about this because who knew? Well, anybody following the campaign knew that parental dissatisfaction, frustration, anger, feeling of powerlessness had a lot more to do with schools than anything else. And it wasn't just about this, oh, Toni Morrison wrote this Pulitzer Prize winning book, Beloved, and, and McCullough vetoed a law that would have allowed parents to opt out. First of all, it wasn't book banning. Terry McAuliffe said Glenn Youngkin wants to ban books. That was not his position. That was false. 
But let me move on to the Dalton piece. And he says the McAuliffe approach isn't going to cut it. You can tell people that CRT, critical race theory, is a right-wing fantasy all you want. But this debate was actually instigated not by right-wing parents, but by an ideological transformation on the left. So Democratic politicians may need to decide what they actually think about the ideas that have swept elite cultural institutions in the past few years. I suspect a lot of them, and a lot of liberal pundits, says Douthat, really think that the immediate future of the Democratic Party depends on its leaders separating themselves to some extent from academic jargon and progressive zeal. He goes on to say that, you know, you've got a struggling Democratic administration and you've got these cultural progressives who overreach. This has created a big opening for the GOP just one year after Biden won the White House. You don't actually need a Trump-like figure at the top of the ticket, he says, to mobilize Donald Trump's core voters. This may get to the heart of why this has been such an earthquake. With the right candidate and circumstances, you can hold your Trumpist base and win back suburbanites as well. Because that's the thing. I mean, Donald Trump lost in 2020. Uh, And by the way, there's no talk about um, ballot fraud or chicanery or mail-in fraud in the Virginia election. I I don't know what happened. If Terry McAuliffe had won, would some conservatives be complaining about that? Anyway, the thing is, the question is, did Youngkin, you know, neophyte candidate, marketed himself well, ran a good campaign, separated himself from Donald Trump to some extent, did he find a key, a blueprint, uh, a playbook for running in what I'll call the post-Trump era, not that the era is devoid of Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump makes news every day. But he's no longer the president. And here's what Douthat says. The problem is the core Trumpian constituency still wants Trump to lead the party on pure own the liberals grounds. But maybe, just maybe, the solution for the party's less Trumpy constituencies is to rally around an alternative who just put Trump's 2020 showing to shame. That is, Youngkin ran ahead of Trump in many key rural and suburban counties in the Commonwealth. Yeah, Douthat says that's probably a fantasy, but a certain kind of Republican donor consultant will wake up uh, from a very pleasant dream on how Youngkin did it. Now let's look at National Review. Now, National Review has never been totally anti-Trump, but certainly became a lot more critical of Donald Trump. Uh, which criticized him, certainly in 2016, criticized him throughout his presidency, became a lot more critical when Trump claimed the election was stolen and certainly after January 6th. So, simply put, without Trump on the ballot or in office, says the magazine, the Republican candidate did significantly better. And Republicans now have to learn this lesson. They'll be more competitive if they do not have Trump leading the party. And, you know, Trump supporters and Trump loyalists will dismiss this as, oh, National Review, they're not really conservative. Of course, National Review feels like it is uh, holding the line on old-fashioned, old-style, smaller government, less regulation conservatism, as opposed to the more populist movement that became known as Trumpism. To continue uh, with this piece, if Republicans rally around another nominee in 2024, they have a chance to secure control of Congress and retake the White House. If they nominate Trump anyway, it puts Democrats back in the ballgame. 
And, and National Review goes on to say, look, the Democrats can do a lot of damage, even with a 50-50 tie in the Senate and a three-vote margin in the House. They are pursuing sweeping social welfare plans. Imagine what they would do if they had a few more seats in the Senate, enough to blow up the filibuster and pack the Supreme Court. They're not packing the Supreme Court, but anyway. Uh, the stakes will simply be too high in 2024 for Republicans to defer to Trump and allow him to use the election as an extended ego trip to air his grievances about 2020. Uh, many prominent Republicans are privately hoping that Trump simply decides not to run. I can tell you that I know people that I have spoken to off the record who are very much in the Trump orbit, who are very much on the Trump team uh, in 2020, who also do not want him to run, who feel that he only wants to pursue the stolen election argument, that he's about the past, and that the GOP needs to move forward into the future. So I think National Review is on to something. And then, you know, the magazine says, look, this is possible, but Trump's not exactly retiring quietly to write his memoir. Um, he injects himself into the national conversation on a regular basis, and he still holds these rallies, uh, and everybody shouldn't just assume that he's not going to run. And there's the thing. You know, all these people can write all the op-eds and magazine pieces and thumbsuckers and have cable news segments they want. But if Donald Trump wants to run in 2024, he will win the Republican nomination, barring, you know, ill health or some unforeseen thing like that. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Let's move on to the more mainstream analyses here. And I got a couple other subjects I'm going to get to as well. Number three, New York Times. And this is an example, I think, of, hey, this education parental thing. Now they're calling it a wedge issue. Well, it is a wedge issue. But it's not necessarily, I mean, I have a whole column today on Fox saying that the automatic assumption that parents who feel they should have more of a say in what is taught in their schools, and this also extends to the schools being closed, and I'll get into this in a second, they're not necessarily racist. They're not necessarily white supremacists, as some of the more extreme voices on the left would have you believe. They're just concerned parents who don't want their kids to be indoctrinated and don't want to feel that elites are running the public school system. By the way, of all these pundits who sound off about this, I wonder how many send their kids to private schools. I mean, in private schools, too, this is a debate. This is a debate where parents are worried about even private schools going to work. But at least when you have public schools, you're talking about taxpayers' money, and you can understand Parents, families who pay taxes, wanting to feel like they have some voice in what their children are taught. So New York Times says Democrats on the ballot next year say that unless Biden and party leaders address voters close to home frustrations, they were certain to lose their congressional majorities. I think they were going to lose the House anyway, but I continue. This is a really important quote that you will hear again and again and again from Virginia Democratic Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger. She's got a tough fight. She's a more moderate Democrat. We were so willing to take seriously a global pandemic, but we're not willing to say, yeah, inflation is a problem and supply chain is a problem and we don't have enough workers in our workforce. We gloss over that and only like to admit problems in spaces we dominate. She goes on to say that Biden's mandate was basically to get rid of Trump and make American life ordinary again. Quote from the Congresswoman, nobody elected him to be FDR. They elected him to be normal and stop the chaos. Nobody elected him to be FDR. But of course, he, you know, remember all those pieces that were written? This is the new FDR. This is, and even now they say this is bigger than the New Deal. 
So Democrats in Washington now say, well, we've, you know, we've got to get these bill passed. Democratic officials also conceded that voters seem to have penalized the party for devoting months to opaque negotiations on Capitol Hill over legislation they've spent little time explaining to the public. I have been on a tear about this for months, that all of this gridlock within the party over it should be three and a half trillion plus another trillion, it should be only two trillion. And not, you know, look, Biden can say, look, I go out and I give speeches, I go to rallies, I go to uh, factories, and I talk about the child tax cut credit and the climate and all of this. But it's gotten totally drowned out. I mean, Biden is not, doesn't make very effective use of the bully pulpit and the fact that he does few interviews and he, the fact that he um, holds few news conferences uh, and the fact that he gives speeches in the daytime when most people are not watching TV because they have jobs and lives means he hasn't been able to move his own party on this. Plus, he's got a party that is badly divided and he can't seem to knock heads together. Here's another Democratic Congresswoman, Kathleen Rice from Long Island. She said, I don't understand some of my more progressive colleagues saying uh, last night, meaning election night, now shows us that we need to do, what we need to do is get both of these bills done and shove even more progressive stuff in. What we're talking about is not resonating with voters. But, you know, uh, this morning on MSNBC, uh, Joe Manchin was there saying, yeah, yeah, I want to work together, but uh, this is what I believe. And Pramila Jayapal was there, yeah, we want to work together. But meanwhile, Nancy Pelosi has put paid family leave back into the bill. That actually, I think, is something that does resonate with a lot of working class voters, many of them Democrats. Um, by the way, uh, according to the Washington Post, exit polls in Virginia showed that about one quarter of voters said education was the single most important issue in deciding their vote. Uh, and of those, half said parents should have a lot of say over what their child's school teaches. Uh, about 30% said parents should have some say. Just one in 10 said parents should have little or no say, which unfortunately for Terry McAuliffe was what he was on the record as saying. Uh, the Atlantic Magazine, from the liberal perspective, it wasn't about Trump or inflation or defunding the police or Medicare for all or infrastructure. It wasn't really about critical race theory or transgender rights. Uh, it was about schools. Specifically, and this is The Atlantic, how many parents remain frustrated by the way public schools have handled the coronavirus pandemic? So that kind of gotten tossed in here. And here's what The Atlantic says. Um, the unraveling began at the schools. COVID-19 has been terrible for everyone. It has been especially hard on parents. Unpredictable school closures didn't just screw up parents' work schedules. They drove millions of parents, including 3 million women, out of the workforce altogether. Remote learning, remote learning doesn't work well for most kids. It's been accompanied by rising levels of depression and anxiety among students. And so what they're saying is, and I'm not saying the schools shouldn't have been closed, but, you know, were they closed too long? Were the teachers unions, which are mainly supported by Democrats, very reluctant to reopen the schoolhouse doors? Yes, 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 and yes. Um, most students in Northern Virginia public schools went almost a full year, and Northern Virginia was not alone, says the Atlantic, without in-person schooling, and both teachers and teachers unions pretty consistently supported keeping the schools closed in the name of public health. Whether these decisions were ultimately reasonable is hard to measure, but the governor, that would be Ralph Northam, was largely absent on school policy at a time when a lot of parents were really angry. And, um, you know, here along comes Terry McAuliffe. He's the former governor, and he makes that comment about parents and schools. And, and, and you know, a lot of parents also are upset with the mask mandates. It's hard to wear a mask seven hours a day while you're going from class to class. 
Here's James Carville on television, uh, and he's been warning for months. He said, I'm worried sick we're going to lose Virginia because the party is too woke. He was right. Some of these people, Carville says, need to go to a woke detox center or something. They're expressing language people don't use, and there's a backlash and a frustration at that. Marvel famously advisor to Bill Clinton, who ran on a sort of a third way. All right, number four, uh, meant to get to this yesterday. The Biden administration has actually filed suit to stop a merger of the largest publisher in the U.S., Random House, actually called Penguin Random House, uh, after a previous merger, from acquiring Simon & Schuster, another giant of publishing. And I've had books published by both Simon & Schuster and Random House, so I guess for me as an author... This is kind of personal. Um, Penguin Random House, the combination there, is towers above the others, according to this uh, piece in the New York Times. It operates 300 imprints worldwide, 15 new releases a year, far more than the other four majors, with a $2 billion proposed acquisition of S&S. It would become even larger. The deal was announced a year ago. It's been under government review, and now Biden uh, seems to be taking a tougher stance on antitrust regulation, uh, has appointed a critic of the tech giants to uh, um, run the Justice Department's antitrust division. And what the Justice Department is arguing in this lawsuit is that this acquisition between these two publishing giants um, would hurt authors because they're often bidding wars for the same books. And as an author, I'm like, yeah. Authors should be paid more, but would also uh, hurt consumers who might have to pay higher prices for books. Uh, here's A.G. Merrick Garland, if the world's largest book publisher is permitted to acquire one of its biggest rivals, it will have unprecedented control over this important industry. And I think this is a harbinger. I mean, there weren't that many antitrust suits in the Trump administration. There was one that failed, AT&T and Time Warner. And a lot of people thought, this was personal for Donald Trump because Time Warner owned CNN and that he pushed it. But ultimately, the two companies were able to merge. Now, maybe uh, this one from the publishing world will turn out to, you know, first, first of all, justice may or may not win the suit. you got to win the suit in the courts. But even if they do win the suit, I mean, are we going to see a whole wave now of a general approach from DOJ that bigger is not necessarily better and that, um, the federal government needs to be more aggressive in stopping mega corporations from becoming giant zillion-dollar mega corporations because ultimately that would hurt consumers. I mean, this has been an argument that has gone on for decades in this country, and I think maybe it's more high-profile because you're talking about these big book publishers, but we'll have to watch and see whether or not this is the first of a wave of lawsuits. And finally, number five, Aaron Rodgers. Quarterback Aaron Rodgers uh, of the Green Bay Packers has been sidelined by coronavirus. And of course, I have great sympathy for anybody who gets the virus, and I hope he's well. But there is a scathing column uh, by Sally Jenkins in the Washington Post. Uh, Say, you know what? Rogers lied. You know, he could have just owned it. Everyone should respect his decision to try homeopathy over a coronavirus vaccine. No one can respect him, she says, for being deceitful about it. 
Uh, good luck to Rogers rolling this one back. He'll now be known as a guy who is slicker than his TV hair, who thought he was unique, too much so to follow rules, and more precious than anyone in the room. May he make a speedy return to the Packers with no symptoms, but as for sympathy, that should be diverted to people who shared spaces with him when he was unmasked, who now have to sit around and wonder whether they brought something home because he was too coy with the coronavirus. Uh, so what, Adger, what Roger said when he was asked about it was like, yeah, I'm immunized. I'm immunized in the preseason when he was asked whether he was vaccinated, when he was vaccinated. That was a lie by omission, says Sally Jenkins, because he may have felt that he had an immunity by trying these other methods. Um, and he did this, you know, in effect, he did this every day. On several occasions, he went into news conferences and deceive people, deceive reporters, deceive the public with what Jenkins calls a weirdly callous charade. Obviously, she says it's Roger's choice whether to get vaxxed, and there are plenty of defensible reasons not to. And he shouldn't be demeaned for that. But what Rogers did was demeaning to others. He had a choice about whether to be forthright about his status or be duplicitous. He chose the second option. Now, more and more, sports figures are becoming... You know, newsworthy, uh, for example, Kyrie Irving of the Brooklyn Nets, who's not playing, who's given up about $15 million, a little less than half his salary, because he doesn't want to get vaccinated. But at least he comes out and says, this is what I think. I don't want this. I'm putting my money where my mouth is. I want to play. I want to play NBA basketball, but I'm, I can't do it because it violates my beliefs. I don't, I can respect that. I, I It's hard for me to grasp that somebody would feel so strongly about getting the jab that they would give up that kind of money. And not to mention, you know, this is what he does for a living. It's his career. The, the Nets might have had a shot at the championship this year. When it comes to Aaron Rodgers, i got to agree with Sally Jenkins. Like, don't mislead. Don't deceive. Don't lie about it. He wanted not to get the vaccine, but he didn't want to tell people he wasn't getting the vaccine. Now it's come out. Now his team has to, you know, uh, play the backup quarterback who has uh, almost no preparation. Clearly hurts the Packers. I mean, obviously, we presume Rodgers will get better and be back in a couple of weeks. But, you know, when you're an athlete, a professional athlete, you play on a very big stage. That's one of the reasons you make lots and lots and lots of money because of the big TV contracts with the NFL, for example, if you're a football player. And with that comes some responsibility, not to just to do what everyone wants you to do, you get to make your own decisions. Athletes have to make a lot of decisions about their personal health. Do they get surgery? Do they get cortisone shots? Whatever it is. But credibility also matters. And this is a guy, and I, I like him as a quarterback, but who kind of lied to the public and now being called out for it. Hey, I hope you'll take a moment to subscribe on your Amazon device or on Google Podcasts or on Spotify or at Apple iTunes. Uh, if you go to foxnewspodcast.com, you can get it without ads. I like making a little money for the company, but you pay a couple bucks, you get, just get to hear the sound of my voice. The sound of my voice will now end with, the, with this parting shot. We'll see you tomorrow with more BuzzBeat. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.